0: The reading of the scriptures from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 19 to 22. So I invite your hearing of the word in faith and reverence and joy that we have God's word. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul's letter to this young Thessalonian congregation is possibly the earliest New Testament letter written. And therefore no other New Testament writings could be referenced by the church. And because the church was made up of largely Gentiles, some Jews, but mostly Gentiles, they had only limited knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures as a reference a history. Certainly there was Jewish influence there in the, in the early church, but um, this was very early on after Paul and Silas and Timothy had been there and they were converted. And if you think about that, They came from a very pagan religious culture which uh, had a long tradition and long standing in all of their families and their businesses. It critically elevated their need in this young congregation for doctrinal discernment. And we see in our text that this congregation was in danger of two extremes, The dangers were these. Number one, despising the prophet's message without due consideration of it. And the other but equal danger was accepting a prophet's message uncritically as true. There's spiritual danger in both cases, is there not? To disregard the true prophet as he speaks for God or to accept the words of the false prophet. And so our outline this morning will be Two simple parts. I know preachers are supposed to have three points and a poem. My uh, professor in in Bible college would probably ask me why only two. Well, there is a good reason, and he might even agree. The text yields two natural divisions, okay? The first division is this. Stop quenching the Spirit by despising genuine prophetic messages. We'll see that in verses 19 and 20. And the second division is examine every doctrine before embracing it. We find this in verse 21 and verse 22. Doctrine was crucial to Christianity in the early formative years, but it's just as crucial today. The New Testament writers repeatedly emphasize the importance of sound doctrine. For instance, listen to 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, "...if any man advocates a different doctrine..." "...and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing." So for there to be a differentiation in doctrine, the church must know good doctrine, to differentiate between good and bad doctrine. For them to know that the doctrine that was being proposed to them did not conform to sound words, the church must know sound words." the church must also know the doctrine that conforms to godliness to be able to recognize that doctrine which did not conform to godliness, the doctrine of Jesus and His apostles. And that doctrine, as you know, developed through the writings of the New Testament uh, apostles and their protégés, and it's come to us in a body of theological truth. To the church was given this body of theological truth and the apostles were always insistent that we as the church adhere and be faithful to this body of truth. And we are to, according to Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so first of all this morning we look at the apostles' warning for this young church to stop quenching the spirit by despising genuine prophetic messages. It says, do not quench the Spirit in verse 19, but we might also rightly translate that, stop quenching the Spirit, for it is something that some in the Thessalonian church were doing. Well, What does it mean to quench the Spirit? Now technically, no one can quench the Spirit himself, for he is God. No one can stop the hand of God or say unto him, what are you doing, Daniel 4, because He rules in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and there is no one that can stop His hand. So what does it mean then? What is Paul telling them to stop doing that they are doing? Quenching the Spirit. Well, I believe from the text it means this, to repress the manifestation of the Spirit's gifts in the church. In other words, to impede somehow the indication of the Spirit's presence. And in those early years, and in that Thessalonian church and the other early congregations, the manifestation of the Spirit was, Spirit was these speaking with the gift of tongues and prophetic inspired preaching. And so, the miraculous evidence of the Spirit in the early church is likened by Paul to a flame which might be quenched. Don't or stop quenching. The Spirit, he says, stop suppressing or repressing the manifestations of the Spirit's work among you. This is wrong, said Paul. Now why the, some in the Thessalonian church were wanting to repress these manifestations of the Spirit, we're not told. The text doesn't yield it. Uh, and I'm not even going to speculate, although having read up uh, when I studied the book of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians for Sunday school uh, a little while back, and then again to refresh... For this message, I was reminded by historians that in the culture of Thessalonica, there was a general suspicion about the cultic prophets of that day. There is a growing suspicion that, hmm, maybe they're not hearing from God. And it's manifestly so because many of the things that they predict would not come true. It's kind of like the Nostradamus effect. If you say something so general and so voluminous, you know, you write a book that thick of generalities and then you can find about anything you want in there. So were the words of the cultic prophets. They read the stars, they read the moon, they read the people, and they said this is what would be. Well, there was a growing suspicion that these so-called oracles from the gods were suspect. So maybe it was a genuine skepticism among the population there. I'm not sure. But let's look for our purpose at some textual clues, okay? The quenching of the Spirit in verse 19, if you look at it again, is connected to prophetic gifts or prophetic utterances. Because it's all one sentence. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. So we remember that in the early years of the New Testament church, as it was growing and developing, the Spirit's presence in the church was inextricably linked to prophecy. Let me show you several places. Look in Luke, for example, chapter 1 and verse 67, where we see here the Spirit's presence is linked to prophecy among the church. Luke 1, and this is speaking of John the Baptist. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Evidence by the Spirit of God to validate the Word of God which would be spoken by him. Also, come over to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Phil has been studying with us through the book of Acts. It's been very, very helpful. And you'll be reminded in Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when the Spirit came, there was evidence. And what was that Spirit in the form of? Let's look in verses um, 3 and 4. There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The Manifestation of the Spirit as tongues of fire lighting on each of them and they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke. Also turn over to Acts chapter 2 verse 17 where Peter in his sermon on that day recounts to them the prophecy of Joel where he says in verse 17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit upon all mankind. Notice the result and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. One more place in the book of Acts, chapter 19 and verse 6. And I choose this because of it is a reduplication of the day of Pentecost among the Ephesian church. And we notice what happens as evidence of the Spirit's work among them. Chapter 19, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So we see here that the Spirit's presence in the early church was inextricably linked with prophecy. So it's no surprise then as Paul writes to the Thessalonians and asks them to stop throwing water on the Spirit's fire as it relates to prophetic messages. Now we should think of prophecy in the early church um, not merely as the occasional foretelling of what would happen in the future. That was part of the prophets' work, the inspired prophets of the New Testament, certainly even of the old. But we should think more in the New Testament sense of the prophetic word as being that which is the interpretation and application of the Scripture. Certainly today that's the case. I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 with me. And we see here what the prophet's work is to do, the New Testament prophet. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Paul, of course, is writing to correct some things in the Corinthian church. He's writing to them to instruct them and, and keep them from some extremes that had been happening. Notice what he says in verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That's how we should see the work of the New Testament prophets, the inspired word interpreting and applying Scripture for edification, to build you up in the faith, for exhortation, urging you to obey that word from Scripture, and for consolation, to provide hope and strength in godly living. Remember the prophets, so-called prophets in in Acts 15, chapter. Chapter 15, verse 32 of Judas and Silas, they were truly prophets. I don't mean to indicate they were not. But they called them prophets, and here's what they did. They encouraged the, and strengthened the brethren with lengthy messages. Now, if I told you this morning that I intended to encourage and strengthen you with a lengthy method message, you would say, oh. Or maybe you'd say, oh, I don't know what you would say. I was thinking about this last evening, in fact, um, and I won't go into why, what you know, spurred the thought in my mind, but I was just thinking of, of people, myself included. Whatever I truly, truly value, whatever I desire, whatever I want, seems to me the time is almost nothing, right? I mean, you could apply it to many things. We could use the simple analogy of a, of a concert or a sporting event or whatever. Um, in fact, uh, in a recent uh, tribute or biography of uh, Garth Brooks, I saw, he's not a hero of mine, but I just saw, came across a biography. They were talking about these people who would stand in line for hours for the concert, even have a three-hour concert, and it would end at midnight, and then they would stand in line for six hours to get his autographs afterwards. You see, because the time, if it's something you really, really want to do, the time seems as nothing. But when a preacher stands on Sunday morning to preach, they say, you got 30 minutes, brother, get on to it, because lunch is coming. Now, do we value rightly, the preaching of the Word of God? Does the time seem to us as nothing? Are our souls fed in such a way that we want more rather than less? Well, it becomes the preachers to preach the truth of the Word of God so that we are fed, but it becomes, becomes us as people who listen to them and are fed by the Spirit of God that we should desire the pure milk of the Word. Coming back to our thought that Prophecy is that of interpreting and applying the Scripture to our hearts. John Calvin said that the voice of preachers is the instrument of the Holy Spirit. I think of that and I shudder to think that God has called me to such a work as this. But it's the Spirit, not the minister, that makes the difference. We must have our minds stirred up by way of reminder, as Peter says. Peter says, I'm reminding you of some things that you already know, but it's good, it's valuable, it's important for us to have our minds stirred up. It's almost like cultivating the soil. The soil in Oklahoma, if left untended, will become hard, and it will become cracked, and it will become dry, and none of the things planted will grow. It requires cultivation. In our hearts and our minds are like that soil. It must be cultivated. It's the Word of God through the regular preaching of the Word that does such a thing as that. It certainly was not spiritually profitable for the Thessalonians to reject or downplay or disregard the, pers- it, the message of the inspired prophets that God had sent to them. It's certainly not profitable spiritually for us to disregard the regular preaching of the Word of God. But let me say this also. If you have not cast your soul upon the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and removal of your guilt... You are despising the Word of God, the gospel of God, and you are doing so at your own peril. I plead with you to call upon the Savior of mankind who will be merciful to you and He will receive you. Repent this hour and stop despising the Spirit's work through the preaching of the gospel. Well, we come now to the second part and where really the body of what I want to say to you today is, and that is to examine every doctrine before embracing it. We find this in verses 21 and 22. While Paul warns the Thessalonians to stop despising prophetic messages, they're also warned of another danger. Verse 21 begins with the adversative, but. We might say, on the other hand, or as a contrast to that, Stop despising the genuine message. Receive it. But on the other hand, examine everything carefully, very carefully. The word carefully in the New American Standard is added for clarification. Uh, but I think it's a good addition for explanation. We might say that there's a critical balance that we have to keep in mind. Examine everything carefully is connected back to the very same prophecies that some in the church were despising. Stop despising the prophetic messages that the genuine prophets are bringing to you, but examine everything very carefully in order to find whether it be genuine or not. The King James Version, I think, says prove all things. Those of you that may be reading from that and prove is a good way to describe what the Apostle is intending here. Prove something, it captures the sense of whether it should be accepted in the church or whether it should be rejected. Look just a little bit back in your New Testament to the book of Philippians and the first chapter. and Notice what the, Paul, what the Apostle Paul prays for the Philippian church, again, a young church at this time. We find this in verses 9 and 10. Philippians 1, 9 and 10. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So the apostle is praying for this church that they may have knowledge and they may have discernment and that they may distinguish between things. And that's what the word approve literally means, to make a distinction You can't make a distinction between truth and false if you don't know truth. You'll not know the one from the other. You cannot make a distinction or make a discrimination as the word was often used in times past. You can't discriminate between things that differ if you do not know the genuine truth of the Word of God. Paul prays for their knowledge and their discernment so that they may be able to approve or distinguish between the things that are excellent and those that are not. Let me read you a quote by J.C. Ryle. Many of you recognize the name Evangelical Anglican Bishop who died 120 years ago, I believe. But listen and see if his words do not resonate with us as if they were written today. He says, Satan is never out of his diocese. His specialty is to destroy the pure witness and the fellowship of the church of God. Perhaps there is no more ominous feature of members of the church than the lack of discernment. They can listen to what is good and true and to what is bad and false without discrimination. If we are to live in a world where the enemy is active and error is rampant, we must be imbued with a good measure of critical faculty. And here the elders tending the flock must cultivate for themselves and inculcate in the members of the church that sensitivity to truth and right so that they and the people will be able to detect the voice of the enemy. That's a good word, is it not? Now we're not to receive and embrace any doctrine as true simply upon blind trust of the speaker or the zeal by which the speaker brings it or by a long-standing tradition, whether that is a denominational tradition, a familial tradition, or a cultural tradition. I, as an elder of this church, I hope you trust me. I hope I never give you a reason not to trust me. But that in and of itself is not a reason to embrace everything that I teach as true without holding it up to the standard of the Word of God. To the Scripture, to the law, and to the testimony. Always, always. Unlike other religions of the world, Christianity not only encourages critical examination of all of its doctrines, it commands it, does it not? I mean, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, a young church in the formative years of the New Testament, you've got the responsibility of putting everything to the test and seeing whether it is worth your embracing as true and living by, and, and not only living by it, applying it, but preaching it, going out and preaching it, or whether it ought to be rejected outright. You've got that responsibility. According to 1 Corinthians 14.29 and 12.10, you don't have to look at it now, but we're, we know that God gifted certain ones within the early church to be able to make a judgment like this. At least in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, it says, let the prophets speak, two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. Remember that? There were men gifted in the early church that could make a distinction. They were discerning, and they could say, this is the Word of God. This is to be rejected. So God protected the church in such a way till the New Testament canon could be complete. Well, it was important for Paul, as we come back to 1 Thessalonians, Important for Paul to give this church the warning because it wasn't long after they were established and the apostles had gone and they'd written to them and they'd gotten news back from Timothy and then, and then they wrote this letter. But uh, if you look in Second Thessalonians chapter um, 2 and verse 2, you'll see something that's incredible. Actually, let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Early on again, remember, the activity of Satan already had begun. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. It's a very important doctrine, is it not? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church's gathering to Him, very critical that we get it right. Notice what verse 2 says, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, that's the prophet himself, or a message, that's his inspired teaching, or a letter as if from us, that would be obviously a written letter like from the apostles, any of those things. Don't let them disturb you to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul had to make a correction because the church had begun to embrace the theory that the Lord had already come. And this would have thrown the church into chaos and deteriorated the power and the effectiveness and the witness of the gospel. Very early on, the written Word of God spoken Word of God, showed themselves to be absolutely indispensable. How are we today to discern or discriminate between things that differ? Listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says concerning Scripture. The supreme judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined... In all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. Examine everything carefully in the light of God's Word. Well, now, why is it essential in our day that we exercise doctrinal discernment? might be thinking, well, Ron, we... We have the written Word of God. We're not in those formative years when well, there must have been such a discernment between the prophetic truth and those that should be rejected. Well, I hope you know that it's still essential today. And let me give you three reasons. I could give you many more. I had to get something of a three in, okay? it's uh, I'm duty-bound to give you three of something. No, not real. But there are three main reasons that I want to bring to your attention, all right? Why is it essential that we exercise doctrinal discernment in the church today? First of all, to counter the devil's deception. Look with me in 1 John chapter 5. And if I were just being candid with you this morning, brothers and sisters, as to why I felt the necessity of this message and have felt for some time, it's because we need to counter the devil's deception in our day. You may not see the necessity as keenly as maybe I'm feeling it now. But I hope that after we speak this morning, you will see more of it. First John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, that's not obviously in the absolute sense. We sin. We are vestiges of sin in us. We are imperfect until the day of our glorification with our Lord Jesus Christ. But but you know that there that the idea is that we do not continue with a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God. We've been converted. We are in a new kingdom with a new Lord and a Master, with uh, new guidelines and new hope. So we don't sin as a pattern of life. But notice this, but He, this is a reference to Jesus, but He who was begotten of God keeps Him, keeps the one who was born of God in the first part of the verse. Keeps the Christian. And the evil one does not touch him. That's why we're not touched by the evil one. Ultimately, we're not touched by the evil one or anyone related to the evil one because Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, keeps us. But notice verse 19. We know that we are of God. A wonderful confession. Notice the last part of it though. And the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. What makes you different? the power of Christ in you, Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. He keeps us. He shows us that, in fact, we are the children of God. Otherwise, we would be among those who are held in the power of the evil one because the whole world is held in the power of the evil one. But we can distinguish, we can recognize, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. And so we must counter the devil's deception. We must speak out in the church and we must speak to our neighbors and our friends. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, whenever Satan speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, from his own nature that is, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Spiritual deception may be at an all-time high in the church. I'm not even looking out at the world that is deceived. I'm talking about the church, the, the confessional people of God. I'm intensely concerned about the church's ability to discern and see through the devil's deception. We must. What's another reason that it's essential that we have doctrinal discernment in the church today? Well, it is this, to expose the false teachers in the church. If you're still in 1 John, look in chapter 4, the first three verses. 1 John 4, first three verses. It's critical that we expose false teachers in the church today. You've heard Phil say over and over and over that there are false teachers in the church. Church at large, there are false teachers and they must be exposed. 1 John 4 Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. He says very plainly, don't believe every spirit. I might say, why are Christians so gullible? <laughs> we ought not to be. Now We ought not to be disrespectful of known teachers of the Word of God. But We should examine everything critically. We ought not to languish in churches who have bad doctrine and who have compromised the truth year after year without calling them to account. Don't believe every spirit also includes reject those that aren't from God, does it not? We need to expose false teachers in the church. In Revelation 2, 2, I don't want you to look at it just now, but make note of it. Christ commends the Ephesian church for exposing false apostles. Listen to what he said. Notice their zeal, notice their intensity, notice their toil and perseverance, active. He says, I know your deeds, I know your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. You as a church can endure evil men. He goes on and explains a little further. You put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. That's intensity. That's determination. That's toil and perseverance. The church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, putting doctrines to the test and rejecting what is false, never accepting or turning a blind eye to that which is false. Remember, brothers and sisters, a small deviation from the truth leads to a massive deviation later. One small step for mankind away from true doctrine is one giant leap away from truth, the truth from the Word of God. We must be vigilant. Another reason we should exercise doctrinal discernment in the church today is to continue the effective advancement of the gospel. Think about this. A doctrinally compromised church is an ineffective witness to the world. Let's look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and get a little bit of the background of the Thessalonians. Actually, let's look at chapter 2 verse 13. The Thessalonians first received the Word of God at the hand of the apostles. Notice this in chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. They recognized by the Spirit's grace, Spirit's guidance, and the regenerating power of the Word in them as preached by the apostles. This is not the Word of men. This is nothing other but the Word of God Himself. And they embraced it as such. But it didn't stop there, did it? Notice the steps that they took. Now look at chapter 1 and verse 6 where it says this, After embracing it as true and the true message from God, you also became imitators of us and the Lord. Their life changed. They imitated the words of the apostles. They repeated the words of the apostles and of the Lord Himself. They imitated them not only in their zeal for the truth, their love for the truth, but in their suffering for the sake of that truth. It didn't stop there. Notice the next step. Verse number 8, chapter 1... For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you. They went, having embraced it, and having imitated it in their own word and in their own life, they went out to preach the gospel to others. The word of the Lord sounded forth. And it was the word of the Lord, not their version of it, not their take on the gospel, not life lessons. They imitated the words of the apostles, the gospel as God gave it. And that's my desire today. It's every minister's duty is to give the Word of God as He gave it. You don't need my editorial comment upon God. He needs no editing. You don't need my twist on Scripture. That's just twisting Scripture. You need the Word of God as God gave it. I need the Word of God as He gave it. The pure milk of the Word, the genuine article, the living and powerful truth. And if we would be effectively advancing the gospel, we must do as they did. Good doctrine makes good evangelism. Bad doctrine makes bad evangelism and bad churches, I might add. Well, very briefly, how are we to respond once we have put any doctrine to the test of Scripture? Well, Paul gives them two imperatives. We find these in the last part of verse 21 and verse 22. When we have put these doctrines to the test and we have made a judgment and we have determined upon which side they stand, true or false, we're to do these. First of all, we're to hold fast to what is good. Good means genuine. As in uh, John chapter 10 and verse 11 where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I'm the genuine shepherd in contrast to all others who are uh, imposters, Genuine Beautiful, worthy, that's the idea. Hold fast to that which is genuine and good and beautiful and worthy. We're not at liberty, once truth is known to us, to reject it, or we're not at liberty to ignore it or undervalue it, but we must embrace and obey it. The idea is beautiful. Pull it up close and don't let it go for any reason. One of the things I'm really, really missing amidst this COVID mess, is our family, we hug one another. When we have family nights, we have about 25 to 30 people come over to our house, family, and the first thing I do when they come through the door, every one of them, even my son-in-laws who stand there like that, we embrace and we say, I love you and I'm glad to see you. And when they get ready to leave, if I can catch them before they go out the door, I grab them again and I tell them, I love you. And I'm proud of you. I'm glad you're here. It's good for me to see you. I miss that very badly. The idea of once you have tested a doctrine and you believe it to be from God, it accords with Scripture, it aligns with the Spirit's Word, you grab a hold of it and you pull it up close and you don't let it go for any reason. You hang on for dear life, even if it costs you dearly. Why? Because it's worthy. It's worthy. You embrace it and you never let it go. But he gives another imperative, does he not? In verse 22, when you test something and realize that it is not from God, it does not accord with Scripture, it is not doctrine conforming to godliness, it is not sound words, we are to reject every form of evil. Reject or abstain from every form of evil. And this is the opposite of grabbing something and bringing it close. It means push it away. Push yourself away, literally, from it. You see something that's false, you push away. Push away. You reject it. Form of evil is often translated appearance of evil. Does your Bible say that? Avoid every appearance of evil? It's, it's a literal translation of it. It could be. I like the word form of evil because appearance of evil might lead us to think that the, we're to watch for evil as it arises in ourselves. But, but that's not the context. We are to watch for that. But the context is clear in that we're to watch for evil in doctrine among the inspired prophets, or those preaching and teaching, and we are to reject evil in any form in which it appears. Remember when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians there in in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he says whether it's a spirit or a, a letter, as if from us, or whether it's inspired teaching, it doesn't matter. Examine it and reject that which is false. I think it means, appearance of evil means the evil in the supposed inspired revelation of the prophets, because there were many false prophets then. See, verse 22 connects back to verse 21. Again, it's a full sentence. Here's the sentence. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. It's all connected together in that we are to whatever form bad doctrine may come in, whatever appearance it may make, we are to test it and reject it once it's known that it's false. Listen to what Titus chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 say, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things which they ought not to teach. When the church refuses to listen to bad doctrine, bad preachers go away. When the church embraces true, uh, embraces teaching, pardon me, based upon the speaker, or based upon a tradition alone, or based upon the zeal, or the impressiveness, or however much he may believe he or she what she is saying, the church needs to refuse to listen to bad doctrine. They must be silenced. One more quote from. Bishop Ryle, and then we'll bring it to a close. Necessity, he says, is laid on us. And this is how I feel about it. That's why this quote spoke to me. We must fight. There are no promises in the Lord Jesus Christ's epistles to the seven churches except to those who overcome. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought A fight. We're in that fight, ladies and gentlemen. The fight of our life, so to speak. Fight for the truth. My friends, we can't afford to be passive in the area of discernment. Our souls depend on it. Some of you have spoken to me, and your story is a little bit like my story, my journey of faith. You came from some churches whose doctrine was not entirely aligned with Scripture my story is this, and I think it's some of your stories. As we studied the Bible, as we understood more and more, as we grew in our faith, as the Lord revealed things to us, we recognized this is bad doctrine, this is bad teaching, this doesn't accord with Scripture. What should we do? Well, we tried whatever influence we may have had to speak about it. I myself uh, have been called to preach. Almost 30 years ago, once I was deacon in a church, I, it was the first time I went to the elders hum, with humility and asked them to consider some things. It didn't go so well for me then. So we left that church. Grow some more. You learn some more. You see more things. What can we do? First option is not to leave the church. Now I don't want you to think that. First option is to confront through Scripture humbly bad doctrine and correct it. Reject that which is bad. But we have to work together. Pastors and people, shepherds and sheep, encouraging each other to examine everything carefully, everything, and holding one another to the standard of sound doctrine, building up one another in our most holy faith. That's what it means. And say the pastor builds you up only, the elders build you up only, the teachers you trust on the radio build you up. Building up one another. Your words matter. Your testimony matters. Therefore, your doctrine matters. The foundation is critical. And I'm concerned with the foundation in the church today. We must discern, distinguish, determine, judge between the things that are true and scriptural and the things that are not. And by God's grace, may it be so with us here at Grace Bible Church.